0: Hey everyone, this is Anand Punjabi and you are In The Game, a podcast about sports, business and the business of sports. You might remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about The Masters and I watched The Masters largely on The Masters app because I wasn't around at home for a good chunk of the coverage and I thought it was really quite fantastic. I got to watch any shot I wanted from any player on demand. I could literally watch any of the thousands of shots being struck all over the course in real time. Why am I talking about that? Well, it brings us to today's show, where we go deep into the rapidly evolving dynamics of how digital technology continues to disrupt how sports media is created, produced, distributed, and consumed. This is a very rapidly changing industry as we know, And to help us navigate this minefield of a topic, we have brought in our good friend and fellow Georgetown alumni, Paul Erickson. Paul is a veteran technology analyst focusing on consumer electronics and video distribution. Paul has over two decades of industry experience, and his research and coverage has spanned connected consumer electronics, pay-and-broadcast TV digital and physical media, streaming device and services, and digital rights management. Paul has been quoted in many news outlets, industry publications, including and not limited to the Financial Times, USA Today, the Wall Street Journal, the Associated Press, CNN, NBC, and many others. So Paul is going to bring his fantastic industry experience and expertise in the world of digital streaming rights, and we're going to apply it to sports with a special focus on the UFC and how they took big risks with digital, which ultimately saved them from obscurity. Now, folks, let's get in the game.
1: Paul, good morning, good afternoon. How are you?
2: Good afternoon, how are you both? I'm, uh, I'm well, thank you.
1: Good, good, where do we find you this morning?
2: I am uh, speaking from Austin, Texas in the States. So a little bit of time difference here, I believe uh, six hours. Yeah, I think it's still six hours. Six
0: for me, here. one for Vlad, yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly,
1: yeah, so we're kind of spread out here. But uh, yeah, um, very happy to have you on our podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us, Paul. Uh, just by way of introduction, uh, tell us a little bit about your you know, professional background, sort of how your you know, winding road of your career landed you where, where you are today.
2: Uh, yes. So it's, it is indeed a bit of a winding road, but uh, overall, I've been a, a technology industry analyst uh, across kind of the consumer enterprise and service provider markets for about 16 years prior to that, I spent about five years doing competitive analysis in the software industry. And, you know, from after the software industry, essentially my topical coverage in the area of tech, uh, again, across uh, consumer enterprise and service providers has really spanned the gamut of audio and video uh, across home and professional AV, from pay TV services and hardware, to digital broadcast and digital transition, uh, streaming video services and related devices, Everything from, from physical to now digital media. And in the last five years, I've focused quite a bit on all things video from the consumer and service provider perspectives.
0: So service provider perspective and consumer. So one thing that fascinated me, and this is why I thought it would be a great idea if maybe you know you, uh, you would agree to come on the podcast. And again, very grateful that you, you, you've come abroad. As you know, we, we speak about sports and business on our show and over the course of the last 12 months or so, we've come across and have been learning and uh, gaining an understanding of how digital consumption of sports is becoming, to put that into broad terms. Obviously, there are many components that that go into sports broadcasting today and, and the consumption of sports today. Uh, we thought perhaps we could uh, lean on you a little bit with your experience in in technology and in particular digital technology to give us perspective on how you think sports is likely to be consumed uh, today and going forward what does the media landscape look look like from a from a broadcaster's point of view you know where is it heading vis-a-vis linear ott other digital those are the types of things we thought we could we could talk to you about I know that you have a particular interest, uh, I would say expertise in, in mixed martial arts and the UFC. So perhaps using that as a as an example, we could talk through some of these things.
2: Uh, sure. I guess let me start with uh, let me tackle one of those things at a time. I think uh, let me start with looking at the kind of the the sports media landscape today, uh, where it's heading, and kind of the influence of of digital and so on, and. I think maybe the best top level way to summarize that is that uh, certainly the you know the streaming and OTT video revolution has affected sports as a, the the nature of, of viewing. If we're not talking about live, it, it's largely an on-demand or catch-up affair. I mean, just inherently, people expect to be able to access you know a highlight, uh, a replay, what have you, and on an on-demand basis, right? It's not uh, very few people these days. Are, although there is still that market for it, uh, but few people really want to wait for a scheduled rebroadcast of a game, right? They, they want instant access to either the highlights or the game itself. And they, it's just the expectation now due to the era we're in uh, of, of on-demand that's been enabled by, uh, by all those assets going digital and by OTT enabling uh, a lot of that on-demand uh, play out to... Uh, you know, what you're on and wherever you're at. So whatever device you're on and, you know, whatever the use case might be or or place that you find yourself. Of course, connectivity has played a role in that as well. Now, live sports, you know, in and of itself has always been a viewership driver. It heavily drives engagement and subscriptions. And whether that's uh, to pay TV in general or that is to a particular franchise or or event on a per event basis, like a pay-per-view, what have you. Uh, live sports has always been very strong in, in driving all of that. And let me back up. As far as the traditional broadcaster linear viewing use case is concerned, especially over traditional pay TV in infrastructure, you know, sports media will still continue to fare well in that medium insofar as, in my opinion, insofar as live events are concerned. Uh, however, the nature of today's connected consumer uh, has affected just, just the average Taste and standard of uh, media consumption, particularly with sports, as I mentioned before, nobody wants to wait for a rebroadcast of yesterday's game. Uh, you want to pull up those shots on goal in the second half uh, now, right? I mean, you you don't want to wait for uh, you know whatever the rebroadcast comes up again in the the linear programming schedule on the EPG. And OTT has made it a great time to be a sports consumer, and uh, you know, and they're and they're at times challenging as well because the technical bottlenecks are fundamental ones sometimes you know it puts you at the mercy of your broadband connection or your router for example if those go down then then all of that goes down then you're back to uh to your antenna basically so you know essentially the ott digital broadband access etc has all contributed towards just this this access to sports and on a on-demand basis that you know even five years ago we we just didn't we Paul, can I just process.
0: interrupt and just ask you real quick, just for, for the benefit of our audience, and we're guilty of this as well. Tell us what OTT means, just in broad terms.
2: Right. So I think it's been commonly uh, you know, used so much within the industry that we forget it's kind of a, you know odd yeah. moniker for most people. OTT is basically just a catch-all to, to encapsulate uh, streaming video right? So it stands for over-the-top video, over-the-top meaning over the top of the uh, the walled garden, you know, be using the open internet. The walled garden being, you know, the, the the proprietary nature of traditional pay TV, you know, what they would let you do and not do. And that uh, you could only access your content that you have a subscription to through your pay TV provider on their network, right? That was their walled garden. You couldn't watch that content outside of sky set-top box where you couldn't watch that content in your subscription outside of using you know your comcast cable box and connection in your household and so over the top so to speak uh, is that now essentially it's going over the internet right you can access that subscription over the top of the walled garden anywhere using the internet so it's it's you're right it's a bit of a if you're not in the industry it's not exactly the most uh, recognized term uh, unless you've read some type of article explaining it, so OTT just basically means streaming video.
1: And Paul, this has coincided also with college conferences and, in some cases, professional sports leagues starting essentially their own networks, if you will. I mean, more and more, you know, you're seeing like you know the SEC network and the Pac-12 network and the Big Ten network. Now they have their own channels on you know Xfinity and you know right. Direct and that kind of thing but they also have their own, you know, web streaming service. So for instance, if you wanted to watch a certain, you know, volleyball, you know, women's volleyball match, and that didn't sort of fit into the, you know, 12 to 3 PM slot, um, on a particular date, uh, you could, you could watch it there essentially. Right. This is another part of that. Right. So these, these conferences are kind of, you know, uh, you know, beginning to realize that this content is, ex- is extremely valuable. So, you know, Tell us how that's kind of changed some of this OTT landscape, and where where that might be heading.
2: You're asking. It's as far as a lot of these, uh, you know, franchises and so on, and then the regional sports networks starting their own their own ventures or their own uh, their own play out endeavors yeah yeah yeah. and
1: and i'm thinking more along the lines of like you know the you know the nba now has its own you know nba.com i think major league baseball has something similar where you can watch all of the matches on your phone or on your ipad or on your computer right similarly with like i said you know sec network pac-12 and so forth
2: yeah i I would say that that's you know that's following overall trend within uh let's say the video landscape If, if we pull back from just sports and we look at uh you know how the market for distributing video—that I don't know if that's the right way to articulate it—but if we look at how video has changed over the past uh, five years or so, you know, in general, we've seen this disaggregation away from from the traditional pay TV bundles of old, and you know, I think sports is just one of those types of content that's been disaggregated. You know, so similar to how we've seen the owners of particular. Properties or content properties, and whether that's the Disney's of the world or that's uh, Paramount or what have you, you know, essentially having the industry weight or the uniqueness of content or you know lo- loyal fan base to their content, you know, them having it at such a level that they've been able to, to pull away and start their own uh, businesses, you know, selling that content directly. You know, I think you, you see some of that exploration happening in, in sports as well. You know, a lot of these leagues realize that they, they don't have to be tied to the fortunes of DirecTV or Sky or Comcast in terms of, you know, the eyeballs that they reach. So in, a, in, an, S, in an essence, that's bad English, in essence, for the Internet and, you know, the advancements in, in streaming video, you know, have made it possible for a, a type of uh Democratiza- democratization, mess that word up, of access of sorts. You know where they they are able to independently reach uh, a lot of the public now, uh, and not you know merely constrained to the footprint of this pay be provider or that provider. Uh, I think that you know you'll probably see this trend deepen as far as you know a lot of these uh, owners of franchises or let I me mean, owners of leagues uh, one. Uh, or owners of franchises that have a strong enough uh, engagement and fan base, you know whether that's a a, a Man United or uh, Real Madrid or you know a, a particular team. I don't, I don't know if there's something for the for the Dallas Cowboys, for example. But you know, I think even even down to the team level, you know, the, it, it kind of makes sense. So investment, emotional investment, or personal investment drives engagement and viewership. Uh, that's true for fight sports that's true for you know uh, you know traditional league sports or what have you the more people are invested not just the, the games and you know the the competition itself but the more they're invested in the, the people the personalities or the closer they are to the game the the more in turn that's going to drive one retention them not churning away to watch some other sports or some other league games or some other teams games but it'll also drive continued engagement over time
0: so Paul that just want to pick up on a point you, you just made now, engaged fans and engaged fan-based um, driving uh, loyalty. Presumably, that means one of the responsibilities of these leagues and these teams is to focus their attention on fan loyalty and fan engagement. I guess people's attention spans continue to shrink uh, on a daily basis. And therefore, it's up to them now to ensure that they they build their strategies around retaining their their fan base, which I suppose is getting increasingly fragmented.
2: yes, uh, I, you know I don't know if it's if it's a fragmentation of the fan base or it's just that uh, perhaps attention spans are short just because there's so many ways to access content uh, so many options these days that. You know, if people don't have the content that they want to watch, or it's not engaging, or if uh, they, you know, feel like they're wasting their time, then they have ready access to watch any other kind of content very quickly in the in the day of over the top video or in the day of uh, you know such such easy on demand video access. So they can, you know, flip to some sports highlights, or they can go to watch a movie. You know that that they'll see within seconds. Or they can, you know, scan for something else. You know, that might be on game-wise. It, it's just they have so much access to content. So it's not, uh, you know, it isn't the, the era of ten years ago or or, uh, or even five years ago, in terms of how tricky it is. I think to to keep people engaged, and uh, you know, I don't envy the the, the programmers and and uh, you know people in charge of of content and engagement. They have a difficult tasks today.
0: Let's look at an example like Switch. I oh, sorry, Switch. Twitch, I should say. Excuse me. Obviously, Amazon had something in mind when they when they bought Twitch. Are we likely to see plat- more platforms like Twitch emerging? Will you, do you think there will be some consolidation eventually? Larger players are just going to start to buy out, you know, these smaller OTT platforms and and put the content that they have rights over. Uh, Into fewer platforms, or do you think we are going to continue to see, you know, more independent platforms emerging? Teams putting out a website, putting out putting out, uh, you know, or league putting out a platform where all the teams can watch all the games.
2: Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't have a clear cut answer to. You know, I think uh, Twitch will probably continue to to get bigger as it deepens its relationship with the sports world and you know related content. But will other Twitches emerge? Uh, I mean, that certainly depends because arguably Twitch wouldn't be Twitch, the one that, that is a growing sports medium, you know, kind of without the weight of its Amazon ownership, you know, Amazon's content rights negotiating power and the, the the power of the AWS cloud to power all that play out, right? And live and live play out. So, you know, can can another Twitch arise? I think Twitch is a special case. You know, they they happened. In 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 the case of uh, Twitch as an entity, you know they were lucky that they were essentially scooped up or, or teamed up with, you know arguably the, the leading although Microsoft would be you know I have something to say about that, you know the the li- leading web services or leading cloud services provider in the world today. You know, and somebody that also is a head of a consumer ecosystem, or one of the, the you know three biggest consumer ecosystems that has substantial negotiating power and financial capital behind it. So, you know, as far as you know, can there be another Twitch? I think Twitch is Twitch is not exactly the the normal case of a league or a franchise. Uh, you know, looking to to engage in their own endeavor. That said, uh, you know, it it has been done, and I think that uh, the it's a buy versus build equation where if you are, you know, if you're something like a Premier League or an NBA or what have you, you probably have deep enough pockets to try. And, uh, maybe, you know, maybe not build your own CDN like an AWS or, uh, or uh, Microsoft Azure, but, you know, you, you certainly have probably the assets to build out everything on, on top of, you know, one of the, the two or three biggest uh, cloud providers. I guess Google Cloud being the third uh, you can build that platform. Now, if you are maybe not one of those uh, deep-pocketed entities, you probably have to use, uh, I guess this this might be out of Jorn uh, Vlad's wheelhouse. I think it was uh, what used to be MBAM or uh, MLB Advanced. I forgot the moniker already, but they were purchased up recently. They did all the playoff for WWE and NHL and so on. You know, you can, if you are a... Franchise or league or what have you, there are solutions such as the aforementioned whose moniker I could not remember that can get you, that can essentially get you the rest of the way there, uh, including you know app level uh, solutions branded with your brand. Of course, you have to supply the content, but essentially there's, you know, it's it's possible. I think that uh, it's just that the the nature of the game today, it's going to be very hard for anyone to to really. Build it up themselves. Uh, number two, it's going to be, I think, very hard to rise in the way that Twitch has because of, you know, some of the factors I mentioned with Amazon. You know, would somebody else be able to come up and, let's say, secure those sports rights like Twitch has? Probably not. Uh, if you are the the owner of said rights, like you are a league, let's say you're the Bundesliga. Okay, so you have the rights to your own content you know, there's, there's certainly a case to be made that you could strike out on your own, come out, they may even have their own product, excuse my ignorance here, but there's certainly a case to be made that they could come out with their own streaming product uh, and and somehow put their own unique stamp on it content wise. And I, I think that that's, I think the technical hurdles, you know, as long as you have money, the technical hurdles, they stop becoming really much of a hurdle. I think it's more a question of what you decide the product is going to be that you're going to put accessible to consumers. What type of content? And it needs to be something richer than just having game access and replays.
1: Paul, and it seems like we're kind of at this time where there's a lot of experimentation, you know, companies are trying to figure out where's the best place to reach this audience and we talked about, you know, Twitch, on and you accidentally said Switch, but look, Switch is a platform also. The NFL I think partnered with um, one of the games where like, you know, the the skins you know, you could you could buy the skins of their of their football teams, right? You've got Discord, which is kind of an interesting um, you know follow up platform to you know Twitch, also. But I think at the end of the day, um, it seems like things are still kind of working itself out where the audience really is. Is that is that a good assessment? I don't I don't think that we've settled on on anything yet. If if anything, we're at this sort of big disruption sort of period where. Linear seems to be still be kind of lingering around but all these other things are now eating away at it. Is that a good way to describe where things are today?
2: Hmm, I think it's a pretty good way to describe it to be honest. Just just the nature of competition is you know, it's, it's it's aggressive and it's multidimensional these days. I mean, I guess there's no no other way to really put it.
0: Paul, you are a fan um, and someone who knows a lot about uh, the UFC. Could you maybe Tell our listeners and tell Vlad and I as well how the UFC has been perhaps you know one of the pioneers in using these new platforms uh, technologies uh, to effectively save itself from obscurity not very long ago into becoming you know one of the most recognizable uh, most valuable sports properties in the world today they've done some pretty pretty in- innovative things
2: yeah the ufc is a it's a real anomaly you know I, i've been around the the fight industry for probably 20 years
0: can you tell us a little bit how you what your involvement has been that would be great for our, for our listeners to just get a bit of that background
2: ah uh, well i guess uh, i first started training uh jiu-jitsu brazilian jiu-jitsu in the, the mid to late 90s and was always a fan of uh you know the ufc and then it's it's essentially it's, it's it's core inspiring sports in, in Brazil essentially Vale and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu you know competitions when the UFC sold uh, from its former management to Zufa, which is a company formed with the two uh, uh, two Fertitta, uh, two Fertitta brothers Frank and Lorenzo uh, with some minor ownership by by Dana White in 2001 early 2001. Uh, my girlfriend at the time and I decided that we would try and get jobs with the UFC. And so we did a presentation at Dana White over at the, uh, the new offices at 2960 West Sahara in uh, Las Vegas. And, you know, it, it, it didn't work out the way we wanted as uh, we didn't get hired because the UFC decided that simply they were going to uh, use the personnel from the sister ownership and not do outside, outside uh, from their sister company, I should say, Station Casinos, and not do outside hiring. But you know that being the case, we stayed involved with the MMA business. You know, we tried to start our own fight promotion at the time, and additionally, I had uh, you know I had been running a fight website covering the Texas fight scene for uh, for, for many years after that. So it always been you know one foot in the the fight scene. Uh, I helped bring the unified rules from Nevada and New Jersey to the Texas Department of Licensing and Regulation in late two thousand one. And played a role in those rules ultimately getting modified and uh, and ratified in their current form in 2004 to be the, the essentially the combat sports uh, the MMA rules that the UFC and other fight promotions run under today. So I've been involved kind of behind the scenes with the fight business for quite a while. And the UFC, you know, which I've been a fan of for for you know 20 plus years now, has been an anomaly, right? I mean, it's an against the odds story from from pretty much every angle. And to understand how aggressive. Or why they've been so aggressive in, you know, not just uh, pivoting to digital, but also in some of their other moves, uh, such as coming back from the pandemic in an aggressive way. You have to understand their history. You know, the, the the original assets, the IP, was purchased for only uh, around two million dollars at, at that time in early two thousand one, and. Try as they might to get it, you know, back on cable, and then to, to get it away from the reputation that uh, John McCain and others gave it at the time, being human cockfighting, and you know, not sport, and so on. They tried very, very hard to change the look of it, to get additional carriage, uh, and to do a lot of things. And essentially, they for the company, burned about forty million dollars until around two thousand five, and. They struggled with selling it because at that time they were, you know, they were only going to get about $2 million for the entire IAP, which is about what they put into it after having sunk to, you know, $40 million into it. And they decided they would invest $1 million more million completely put a, you know, just, just film, film an entire series of a reality show, uh, an entire season, I'm sorry, of a reality show and offer it to ESPN, Fox Sports, uh, anyone that would take it for free for free. All they had to do is book in the, you know, with their branding and no one would take it. And their thinking was, okay, they, they knew they had very strong engagement when people would watch the content. However, they just, they just did not have enough eyeballs that were able to watch it, uh, able to watch, you know, the, the UFC to drive the kind of revenue that they needed to, to be solvent basically. And so they did, They said, okay, if we make a reality show, or if we find some way of getting on free TV, or, you know, a free tier of cable, that's going to kickstart, you know, our, our way to, to being successful. And so they tried to give this reality show away, nobody would take it, you know, no one. And finally, uh, Spike TV, which was, you know, kind of renowned for having somewhat lowbrow content, decided that they, would, that they would take a chance on it. And the rest is history, right? 2005 was the first season of Ultimate Fighter. And from there, I mean, that really was a pivotal point in their, their fortunes. And, you know, since that time, flash forward to recent history. Uh, in 2016, the UFC sold for roughly $4 billion. Remember, $2 million. Rose sold for roughly $4 billion to William Morris Endeavor or AKA now it's just Endeavor. So the, the, the business is, it was actually never really that secure for, for years until they, they took a chance on you know essentially putting forth that content, that single piece of uh, content, offering it for free to the industry. And it's in the company's DNA to kind of be scrappy and buck the odds. And uh, to be aggressive with technology is a way of uh, never being dependent on one particular either source of revenue or uh, source of, of viewership. For example, they were one of the first sports to really ex- explore the possibilities of, uh, of the Xbox 360 back in the day. Uh, around 2011, they rolled out, uh, I think the MLB was the only other sport or NFL was the only other sport trying this capability at the time. On the Xbox 360, where they, they rolled out the Xbox on 360 app for the Xbox 360, where it allowed you to view the pay-per-view, uh, on the console, let you use the connect. If anybody remembers that, the connect uh, for voice control, uh, let you you know participate in interactive fight cards, fan voting, and so on. And you know, overall, they they've been you know very aggressive. We're rolling out UFC apps for smart TVs, streaming devices, you know, and, and mobile devices over the last decade. And they've always looked for the, these multifaceted ways to increase viewership. And like I said, they 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 really they care about uh, diversified, you know, being diversified, being multi-platform and, and really trying to get their content out there via as many outlets as possible to drive the high engagement and viewership. So whether that's behind the scenes content that they do, you know, leading up to every fight uh, on YouTube, usually it's a, I believe it's a UFC, not UFC unscripted. It's a, uh, I believe it's it's it slips my mind at the moment, but, you know, usually they will do four to five episodes of it each day leading right. up to fight day and they'll uh they now you know are doing regular fights or are doing free fights on um, broadcast on abc right so there's they just finished having a fight night on abc uh they have ufc fight pass where they aggregate uh, not just ufc content but uh partner uh, fight promotions uh, fight content from around the world right so they, they kind of they have something if you are Basically, you know, you're you're hungry for fight content in between UFC pay per views. Well, UFC Fight Pass will keep you engaged 24 seven with fight content.
0: Where can fans um, find this content? You mentioned YouTube. Is it anywhere else? Is this available for free on YouTube, for example, or is it something you have to pay for?
2: YouTube doesn't have, uh, you know, there may be clips that they release on YouTube, but the UFC, the UFC like pre fight content and a lot of the promos and stuff, they're 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 free on YouTube you know, those behind the scenes days leading up to a fight, that stuff is all free on YouTube, right? It helps drive engagement, it helps drive interest in the fighters themselves, uh, which then presumably leads to people wanting to pay for the pay-per-view or people wanting to get on ESPN plus to see an event. And uh, yeah, you know, that's the other major deal they've had in recent years is uh, going to, yeah, is striking a deal with ESPN where ESPN plus would carry uh, some UFC content like Fight Nights, and then would also uh, essentially be their pay per view carriage partner. And, you know, more and to, to kind of cap all that off in terms of uh, the UFC's aggression uh, in m- most recent history, uh, where we've been in an era of pandemic related shutdowns and leagues being, you know, shut down and, and live sports being, you know, heavily curtailed, they were one of the first. Uh, sports entities that, that came back from, you know, the lockdowns and shutdowns of, uh, of COVID-19. And, you know, they, they were trying to li- run live events, even without spectators, uh, in a number of different places, different countries, different, you know, states in the US, what have you. And uh, none would really let them run the way they wanted to. And they had a strong pre-existing relationship with, uh, with, with Abu Dhabi, the government of Abu Dhabi and, you know, some of the, the sheiks and leadership there partially because something that's really unique to the fight scene where, uh, because of the Abu Dhabi combat club and some of the, the the affinity that the leadership in Abu Dhabi has had towards uh, jujitsu and MMA, you know, since the early two thousands, even the UFC, you know, has run in Abu Dhabi before because of this relationship and uh, the, the relationship that they have with, with Abu Dhabi is very strong. So essentially, you know, they, they ran, they ran the first show back from the from pandemic shutdown in Yas Island in the UAE. And, you know, they ran it without any audience whatsoever, right? They, they just wanted to, to run live events. You know, they created a, a bubble of sorts there where they sequestered fighters. You know, they, they basically isolated them for testing and so on. So they, they found a way to, you know, run things safely and to find a place to run and to, to start back up again. Uh, even without the guarantee of of having fans or without the revenue from fans, they knew that the content is the boss, right? So even if it wasn't, you know, uh, having fans in the stands, you know, losing out on that live event revenue, they knew that uh, they need to keep the content flowing and to keep fans engaged to stay in the fight. And that's what they've done. So You know, I I don't know if that's an exact lesson for other sports properties to take on because nothing has typically been, you know, the UFC, nothing about that franchise has really actually ever been normal, right? If you ran that company uh, like a typical NBA or typical uh, entertainment and industry executive or sports industry executive, it would have died long ago. So, you know, it's a bit of an anomaly, but I think their technological aggression and their aggression to try new mediums to try to work their way out of problems, it's in their DNA, right? So them finding, being creative and finding a way around, you know, COVID related shutdowns, it is part of that, you know, it's, it is in line with their brand, with their DNA and their history. And I think, uh, you know, I think what's related to that is how how leagues and teams, you know, can, can innovate in order to stay uh, relevant to the challenges of the time, you know, ch- changing engagement and, uh, how fickle people can be, and the demands of the day, there, there's a lesson from that, right? And, and so, <coughs> excuse me, you know, the creativity there is, is the lesson. And being aggressive with, uh, with what you have is a lesson, I think, that can be taken from the UFC because a lot of the content that the UFC has put out, you know, in the last decade, and especially the last five, you know, a, a lot of it's fighting, but an increasing percentage of it, of it is not exactly fighting. Right. So the amount of of UFC uh, star presence on on sports, you know, on sports shows or, you know, the the amount of content that they produce before and after on sports wrap up shows, you know, where they've got either their own discussion, you know, pre fight or post fight show or on somebody else's network. And in combination with some of the stuff that they have that's a view into what it takes to, to put a fight together or the. You know, days leading up to a fight in the eyes of a fighter, this kind of stuff. You know, those are the pieces of the content that they've been creative in putting out there where they realize that uh, keeping fans engaged is not a question. It's not just a question of getting them access to the sporting event itself, the competition. It's getting them involved and wrapped up in other aspects of that sport where you can bring people into it. Right, you know, you can bring them into the lives of the fighters. You can bring them into the, you know, the production and what it takes to put it together. You can bring them into a lot of the other aspects because that keeps them engaged. And I think that uh, other sports leagues need to do the same. Uh, where, you know, I think on and you and I uh, talked previously about, you know, during a lot of the uh, shutdown for some of these sports, that in in, you know, for lack of anything else to work with, a lot of leagues started uh, showing you lives. Uh, you know, days in the lives of their players, right? You know what they were struggling with every day, and kind of their worries about uh, the pandemic and what it was like being in the bubble and so on. And the franchises have seen a lot of engagement from that. You know, bringing people further into the uh, the nature of their sport. Yeah, emotional connection. Yeah, right? yeah, connection counts. So anyway, that I kind of went off in a couple of different angles there, but I, I think that the UFC, you know, there's some lessons there to be to be brought to. Other sports looking to, uh, you know, innovate, perhaps re- recreate themselves and, you know, find a way to, to, stay, to stay abreast of, you know, ever-changing uh, consumer habits and, and fan tastes when it comes to consumption.
0: We've talked about how important players are, or in fact, how, how much more important players are than teams or leagues. You know, we look at the Instagram accounts of, of individuals and they're much bigger than, in some cases, entire leagues This is a topic we touched upon before, so I do very much take your point about allowing fans to get into the lives of the players. You know, what they do on weekends, uh, what they're doing in training. Vlad, I think we've talked about how Amazon, for example, has some exclusive content with Juventus FC, where they where they have exclusive player interviews. Right. Fans can fans can chat with them only through through the Amazon uh, platform, for example.
1: When you were talking about the voyage that, that you know UFC took uh, from being you know essentially an, an unknown entity to you know getting on you know Spike TV, what what kind of reminded me about that model is that um, that has evolved also. and I looked at uh, kind of what overtime media is doing you know today where everything that they're doing is sort of via their website and you you know YouTube and Instagram. they've really kind of gone into this sort of deep end. and I'm wondering and I'm also curious if 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 a UFC were to, you know, enter the world today if it would even look for a TV partner at this point? Or would it be something more like what Overtime is doing, where it's, you know, highlighting the athletes and really kind of creating its own platform? I suspect they probably
2: would. I think that they wouldn't look for, uh, I mean, you bring up a good point that just the nature of things have changed, where they struggled to find, you know, broadcast carriage back in the day in early 2000s. You know, they struggled to get on, you know, access and open cable. They struggled to reach eyeballs, and today, I don't think that they would bother. Right? I mean, because today you you see how much of uh, content access can be achieved just through having an internet connection. And uh, today's uh, virtual pay TV providers, the uh, Sling TVs, YouTube TVs, you know, Hulu Plus Live TV, you know, those entities out there, you know, they're completely online. So, I think that they would certainly, you know, the UFC or some other upstart of similar mind today would uh, it, I don't think it would be in your interest to really chase a particular you know channel uh, a cable network an rsn particular pay tv provider uh, for exclusivity because that you know in today's mindset that that's that's essentially restricting the eyeballs that can see your content or be exposed to your sport
1: that's right uh, Yeah,
2: you, you want to democratize that access you want to be internet accessible in some way, shape, or form. And whether that means you create your own app or you get carriage on some other, you know, and some aggregated form right on somebody's app, and whether that's uh, you're freely available on Twitch or, you know, YouTube, or you are available, you know, within some other type of medium that's, that's freely available online, you know, to anyone with a smartphone or browser, what have you. Uh, I think that's, that's certainly the way to go now.
0: I have to say, I think I watched more of this past weekend's Masters tournament on the Masters website than I did on Sky. You know, the content was tremendous. We could watch every player's shot, every shot that every player hit, you could watch on demand. You could literally click a player's name, click a hole, and then if they hit one, two, three, four, five shots, you could watch shot by shot every player. So if I wanted to know what Matsuyama did on the 16th, on the third round, I could just go directly there you know i didn't have to i didn't have to go to my my epg and find find the thing and fast forward rewind and get to the right spot so the tools are out there already the tools are there
2: yeah and i think that as you see your teams and franchises get more cognizant of of the value of their content even just the everyday bits that you'll probably see the savvier ones start to get more uh aspirational with what they're going to charge for exclusivity Right, I mean, what, what the Premier League charges yeah. uh, Sky or, you know, whatever, whatever form that may take just because, you know, as they realize that, well, we're sitting on a gold mine of content, you know, why should we allow someone to to take all of this potential revenue when, okay, you know what, we're, we're going to make sure that uh, for everything that we put out that we get all the ad revenue from it, whether that's people watching, you know, that's well, whether watching people, whether it's people watching the, you know, the uh, the lead up to, you know, next week's Everton game, or, uh, you know, it's the the bits in between the highlights or the, the shots on goal, you know, those exclusive camera views that only we wanna put out, uh, we can monetize that, right? So if someone wants exclusive access to all of that, well, there's an opportunity cost for us, right? Whereas before they would just have, they would be happy to take a lump sum check for, you know, somebody else to go through the trouble of, filming all of it and playing it out. And now they realize that, okay, well, there's actually a big business in this. What are we giving away? You know, how can we, how can we get an additional revenue stream of what we're already sitting on? So I think you'll see the cost of content, much like as it's gone up in, in other uh, areas of the video world, I think you'll, you'll see the cost of sports content uh, continue to go up.
0: I think probably here's a good point to wrap it up can we say thank you very much um, for, for coming on the show today? Vlad and I really appreciate it. We hope uh, you'll think about coming back in the future because I think uh, you have a lot of value to add to our listeners. We could probably talk a lot more about, about this huge uh, area of, of sports and media and broadcasting rights and consumption. Uh, and there's still so much more to explore. So maybe we can save that for, for next time.
2: Sure. Sure. And I'd love to come back and, uh, Uh, Thank you again for having me. It's great to kind of chat about some of these topics. And yes, there's, uh, you know, there's so much to chat about these days. It's a time of change, uh, you know, not just in sports, but also in how sports gets distributed and consumed. So I I think uh, it's a great time to be a sports watcher. It's also a great time to be a sports industry discusser. Uh, if you will. So, so yes, I'd love to come back and thank you again for having me.
0: Yeah, that'd be a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Paul. Stay well. All the best, Paul. All the best, bye. Bye Bye-bye.
2: Thanks, take care.
1: Thank you for joining us on our podcast. We know that if you're listening to this show, we know that you know how to subscribe to podcasts. So hit that subscribe button. Tell your friends and your family about us. And if you'd like to get in touch, please connect with us. Our contact information is in the show notes. Thank you for listening. We'll be in the game with you in a few days with our new episode.